From Loyola University Chicago School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate. We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Hi, guys. Thanks for tuning back in. So last time we talked about diversity in a more institutional sense. And today you're going to hear about um our perspective of diversity in a more social sense and in a little bit different uh, different way than we talked about it last time. So um, again, this topic could, we could do a whole podcast just about this topic and we appreciate you guys listening on our thoughts about diversity. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, this is the entire Podvocate board uh, coming at you, as Radhika said, to discuss diversity in one's social circle. If you were lucky enough and smart enough to join us for our last conversation, you heard about our thoughts on diversity in the workplace and in school at an organizational level. And in a way, that's easier for us to talk about what other people should do to increase their diversity. Uh, In this episode, we're going to put the onus on ourselves and we're going to reflect on the diversity of our circle of friends and whether it lives up to the standards that we were just talking about for organizations. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll start, I'll, I'll speak for myself. Uh, I, I have a very small circle of friends just because that's kind of who I am as a person. You know, I know Radhika is different. She's got a, a bigger circle of friends. Um, my wife has uh, a friend who is just got a million friends. And so, you know, law of probability, hopefully, at least dictates that that person would have, you know, a more diverse pool of friends than me who can probably count, you know, close friends on one hand. So I, I don't. I don't have the diversity that I would hold an organization accountable to. Part of that is a figure of just numbers. But part of that is, as we talked about last time, uh, and I believe it was Olivia who touched on it at the end of the last uh, part of this episode series, which is, you know, where you grew up. I grew up in a town of pretty much all white Irish Catholics with a hand, you know, diversity was, you know, a couple of Italians and maybe a handful of Jewish people. And so that, you know, that begat my circle of friends. And ever since I've, I've been in largely white environments. When I lived in San Diego, uh, it is a very, like Chicago, it is a very, geographically racially segregated and so in san diego if you lived south of petco park uh, where the padres play um, you were in a much more uh, hispanic community and if you lived north you were in a white community and from what i i don't get out much in chicago particularly these days but from what i understand if you are south of the loop you are in a more um, african and west of the loop you're in a more african-american community if you're in the north you're in a, a whiter community uh, and so I, I think that where you live often frustratingly dictates who your circle of friends are going to be. So what, what about you guys? Do you feel that, you know, you're able to cultivate the diversity within your own social orbit that you want organizations to have? Yeah, Matt, I really agree with you. And um, Richard Rothstein, uh, who I can call my friend, um, he he wrote the book on it that where you live determines a lot of things. And because segregation was, you know, assisted by the government and continues to be where you live determines your group of friends, your education, your health, health status a lot of the time. Um, so yeah, it's a huge contributor. I grew up in Kentucky. So most of my childhood friends were white. Um, 
My parents were one of the first five Indian families in our tri-state area, um, and they formed this Cultural Society of India, CSI, growing up. My dad was the president of it for many years. So I also had um, like family friends who are Indian, who I continue to be friends with to this day. But again, growing up in rural Kentucky, mostly white friends. And then I, I think I had an interesting experience in that I chose college as a senior in high school, the college I chose was purely for diversity reasons. Um, I went to University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana, and I think it's funny to think of that as a diverse school, or now it's funny for me to think back like, oh man, I went to U of I for diversity. That is ironic. But um, for me, the huge statistic was how many Indian students were at that school. And I really was excited at the opportunity of going to a school where they had their own Indian community and they had an India night and a Diwali night. And I could be uh, like with people from my cultural group. And in the process, I met so many people from so many different countries, international students and first generation and second generation. And I, I had my most diverse experience yet in college um, because I sought it out. I think a lot of people go to U of I and see U of I as a very monolithic white Chicago suburbanite institution, which it is. But for me, it was the most diverse place I'd ever been before college. And now, as a 30-something-year-old woman, I'm looking at my friend group. You say it's big, Matt, and that's because I'm I'm nice to everyone. <laughs> I get along with a lot of people. But if I'm talking about close friends, I would I would say I, I also have a very tight um, circle. And it's pretty diverse. You know, I did okay. Um, mostly Indian and white people because that's who I'm around the most. My husband's white and I'm Indian. And um, that's, that's mostly who. But obviously, I... I, I have friends in many different groups, and I'm proud of that. So I grew up in Glencoe, which is um, a suburb of Chicago, and it's it's very white, but it also has a large Jewish population. So I grew up going to a lot of bat and bar mitzvahs, um, but I wouldn't say that Glencoe defined like my friend group. I, I probably lost touch with those friends and gained a, a bit more of a diverse friend group in college and after college. But it's it's something that I don't think I strive to find in a person. You don't you're not looking for that as in a friend, but it's something that you notice. It's a, it's a quality that you notice later on. So I mentioned in our first episode, I grew up in Seattle and Aurora. Seattle used to be called one of the most diverse zip codes. The part I lived in, it's 98118. It used to be one of the most diverse zip codes. Um, lots of uh, immigrant population, lots of Black folks. Obviously, Seattle has Amazon um, and Microsoft. So you can imagine what um, comes along with having those types of big industries as well as like Boeing, all these things. And so my experience in childhood, particularly with my social circle, was um, folks of all different races and ethnicities, particularly in Seattle. In Aurora, it was very Latinx um, and very Black. Um, and I think that probably still holds true for um, that particular part of the of the Illinois suburb. And I think growing up, particularly in like a Black church, when I was in Aurora, like I was mostly just around Black folks. Um, politically, though, I think in Seattle, my circle was very liberal. Um, and in Aurora, it was 
kind of like the black churchy conservative folks. So, right, like being queer, having piercings, lots of tattoos, definitely not God ordained. So in that way, it was like very conservative. Um, And so growing up between both, I think I had a really good interaction between all of these different sorts of people, ideas as well. And so I think that has definitely shaped um, some of my upbringing. I know in, I went to a a predominantly black high school in Seattle um, that's now been changing especially culturally since they've now become like a stem school but on all the all these things have been like you know obviously shape our circles in my experiences to have a pretty uh wide range of friends with different actually no i probably don't have a lot of conservative friends if i'm being very honest politically um most folks are very much on the abolition liberal tip of life so as I said last episode, I grew up in a very rural area of Michigan. Uh, the area that I grew up was in Allegan County, and in that specific area, uh, it's sort of urban sprawl is bringing a lot more of a, I guess, homogeneous vibe to it. But growing up, it used to be very um, isolated as far as there was German communities, there were Polish communities, there were Irish communities. And they're all sort of centered on the different churches in the area. Although I went to college, it was a little bit further north, and that's a very Dutch area of the state. Um, and just those different cultures, it's really close to Holland, Michigan. So the, the Dutch purveyance is very strong in that area. Um, but as I grew up, I wanted to see more of the real world. Uh, so, of course, I went to Boston eventually for some school. And then I went to the Army. And, again, that's just generally just a very diverse area. And while I was in the army, I got stationed in El Paso and that's where I met my wife, who is a Mexican Native American uh, fireball. And that has been, I guess, the most eye-opening cultural experience that I've had so far. Her dad is Puerto Rican. Um, her mom, like they grew up on the, the borderland of Mexico and the United States. And so experiencing that culture over the past six years now uh that's definitely shaped the way that i view um culture and diversity for me um a unique spot i'm in being adopted chinese is that i didn't grow up in like an asian household so with the a lot of asian communities i didn't fit in quite right because i was like almost too white to be asian but like definitely not a white person so it's it's a little bit of an uh unique experience just being an adopted person with parents of a different race than you and um that's something there's a lot of literature out by adoptees um feeling a little bit displaced in the communities that they both belong to i think having diverse friends really shapes what you think is important and pressing um my friend groups are almost all either queer or trans. I'd say over a third of my friends are transgender. And for a population that is less than like 1% of the national population, like that's a a lot of people. And so trans issues are almost always at the forefront of my mind when I'm considering things. And I think also knowing people humanizes issues. You know, if you have trans friends, like all of a sudden, you know, those trans issues are like, I know somebody who's affected by those, or I know somebody who's found it hard to change their legal name, or I know someone whose university is not protecting trans students or something like that. Those issues become humanized for you. So I think um, the people that you end up being, because people don't necessarily seek out 
specific groups of people to diversify their friendship like you're not seeking out token queer friends or token black friends or something it happens very organically but I think being mindful about what your social circle looks like is important because when you know somebody who's affected by those issues all of a sudden they become real to you you see a lot of people now in um COVID and ever since like um 2015 gay marriage was legalized I think it was 2015 you see a lot of people saying like now my kid is affected by this or my kid came out and now I understand trans issues and it shouldn't take that to humanize an issue for you you know because um people of color or whatever have always humanized you know white issues or straight issues or whatever because those are considered almost like the default so I think I guess this is all to say that being mindful about your friends and being and knowing people who are diverse in different ways helps to make those issues drive them home because now all of a sudden it's not like oh this is like a black issue no this is like um my friend's issue people i know people i love people i care about this is not like an asian issue this is like covid19 like i had people reaching out to me saying you know like are you okay have things happened to you have people said things to you and now it's not like an asian issue oh it's a leanne issue like the leanne i know issue and i think humanizing those issues um really would help to push the culture of diversity forward ultimately because if um like people who were on boards new people who are affected by these issues then all of a sudden it's not like oh we're hiring the token black person or the token minority to the board we're hiring oh this is the person I know and I understand is like the in-group so to speak yeah it's taking I mean it's sad to say but diversity is such an abstract concept to so many people and it's definitely making it something solid and tangible when you can connect a personal experience to that and I I I am proud of my diverse friend group. It's it's a point of pride for me. And I think it's been very deliberate. And I know it may sound weird to some people to say, like, I chose my friends based on diversity. And it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like I walked around with a clipboard saying, I have now an African friend. I have a Jamaican friend. You know, like, it, it just happened. Um, and I think our wedding, my husband and I, our wedding is a really good example of it. We got married in India because that's where a bunch of my family was. And the determination was that it was easier for our American people to get to India than it was to do the reverse because of visa and immigration issues and cost barriers. So there was like even just deciding where to have our wedding. But now when I look back at our wedding video and our wedding pictures, we have men with dreadlocks. We have tall African people. We have people wearing their Saudi gear. Um, we have obviously many Indian people. We have white friends wearing Indian clothes. I am so proud of the coalition that came out to represent us at our wedding. We are the United Colors of Benetton. And I love that. I'm very proud of that. And I, you know, like not to give myself kudos for anything, but it is at this point in my life, something that I enjoy about my life <laughs> is the diversity of my friends. Leanne, you, you touched on something that I, I think really speaks to the heart of this, which is this, this, battle between a social circle being built organically versus 
you shouldn't have to have a, you know, to your example, you shouldn't have to have a, a son or, or a daughter who is gay for you to finally, you know, get behind gay rights. And you're right on both. And so that be, that creates this conflict of how does something grow organically, you know, and to demand more, you know, to just say, well, you need to have a more diverse social circle and just leave it at that kind of ignores that tension. And so I'm, I'm trying to think of a way for a person to pursue diversity in a social circle that's still authentic. And the only idea that I had would be to go and attend some kind of organizational meeting. So I'll, I'll, I'll just make something up. For example, for me as a straight white person, if I were to go to a meeting of the Illinois Hispanic Bar Association, and I were to then just attend a meeting and say, hi, I'm just here to meet people. You know, if I were to attend that meeting, wouldn't that allow me to make an organic connection because I'm just sitting next to somebody who in all likelihood is Hispanic. And now I'm able to listen to what the group has to say and make a connection and hopefully, you know, build out my social circle. Or is that still too forced? Is that is that stu, still to hack need a way to go about building the social circle that is more diverse? I think that in an ideal world, which we very clearly do not live in, these things would happen organically. You could be in elementary school and have a variety of friends to ch choose from or um, any situation work or whatever, but that's not how our life works uh, that's not how our society is. So I think there has to be some level of intentionality. I do because I was intentional about it. And that goes back to my previous statements. I think if we want to loop this in with what we've been talking about overall, increasing diversity initiatives and increasing the diverse population in, for example, the legal profession would organically lead to more diverse friends because more of those people just exist in the profession. So, you know, there's a burgeoning LGBT community in the legal profession, which is still very conservative, but through those initiatives and through support for LGBT people in the legal community, you're going to just naturally meet more queer people or more trans people in the legal profession because more of them are just being allowed to be out and be authentic and be them because I'm when you talked about the legal statistics, I'm sure that there's probably more LGBT people in the legal community, but they don't feel comfortable being out because of the conserv like just the conservative, small C conservative nature of the profession. Yeah, it was so 3%, 3% openly LGBT individuals. Uh, and But I, I am certainly in that 3% is not representative of everyone who identifies that way. Mm -hmm. That reminds me of how a lot of people feel like being transgender or being gender nonconforming is a new thing, but in reality, people have been living this way forever and are now feeling comfortable being their authentic selves. And obviously, you can't come out as a certain race, um, really. It's not usually something that need, warrants coming out. But if we expand diversity initiatives writ large, more people by, will naturally come into the profession, will naturally become a part of it. And all of a sudden, instead of like intentionally making friends, they will just be diverse friends, you know, because of the natural diversity in the legal profession. Although I think it is good to go to affinity bar association events just because, I mean, even from a practical networking standpoint, it's good to have friends in different affinity groups and different 
sectors of the legal profession, just as you have a friend who's doing family law or a friend who's doing civil rights law or a friend who's doing eviction law, you know, having diversity of those groups is acknowledged. Like it's important to have friends of different legal practices. And I think we just need to consider um, like minority groups or affinity groups as part of that diversity. And so I think intentionality is important there as well. I, I appreciate you, you saying that, the intentionality, but I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna, not pushing back on what you're saying so much as challenging us to be more proactive. So in a way, if for what you're saying is, you know, if there is increased diversity at an institutional level, it will then inherently allow for more increased diversity among one's personal network. And, and I agree with that completely, but it does put the responsibility onto others. It puts the responsibility onto your admissions people at schools, and it puts the responsibility onto you know, your employers. And so I'll use Radhika and I as an example, if she's comfortable, you know, I, I am good friends with Radhika and on that circle of hands of who count them on my count them on my close friends, she's on it. But if let's say Radhika went to Northwestern and, and I was here at Loyola, we wouldn't be friends unless, you know, we happened to bump into each other somehow and it happened organically, or I went to uh, an affinity group meeting of the, and I don't know if such a thing exists, but you know, the, the, South Asian or the Indian American um, Chicago Bar Association, something like that. When you talked about, uh, Leanne, intentionality, if we're waiting for institutional level increased diversity, which we could be waiting a while <laughs> to get to where we're, we all seem to want to get, doesn't that then put the onus on us to do more now to get there, which might in turn actually lead have as much as you were saying to use Radhika's phrase, we would have trickle down diversity by having increased institutional diversity. We could also have trickle up in a way where if I am, let's say, regularly attending the Hispanic, uh, Illinois Hispanic Bar Association meetings, and then there's an opening at my firm, I can say, hey, I know this guy who is, you know, uh, who I've been able to make a connection with at the Hispanic Bar Association. We should consider this person to come over to the firm. And then that person is hired and becomes an equity partner. And so part of me wonders if, if there's both possibility for trickle down and trickle up and then the trickle up puts the onus on us to do something now rather than saying, well, I'll just wait until it happens and, you know, Radhika and I being forced into a room made us friends. We were we went to that um, Richard Rothstein discussion like the day before class started and we met each other for the first time and, and we've been friends since. Rather than wait to be forced into an environment where one must interact, do we force ourselves instead is my is my question. Do we is the should the should the onus be on us now as at the very least people who all for all uh, appearances sake appear to be progressive and want these things, should we not just critique in the institution? Should we go do it ourselves? So to answer your question, I think the answer is yes, but I actually have a question for um, Lenny and Emmett. Um, so I don't know, cause I'm not a white guy, but I feel like often the issue might be that when one of the affinity groups does have a meeting or um, a bar night or something like that, it almost feels like you're not welcome. 
and I don't, I'm just basing this off of conversations with my husband, um, conversations with other white friends I've had. I'm not saying that's how it is and that you aren't welcome. I mean, some spaces people of color create for themselves because they want to have, feel comfortable in that space. That's not always the case. I'm just saying, do you, when you see that, okay, this affinity group is having a cultural night or this affinity group is hosting some night, do you feel that you're not welcome so you're not going to go? Or is that not like a thought that goes through your mind? You know, I wonder that sometimes. No, just personally, I mean, I've been to like women's law events and things like that. It's a little bit weird now because we're in COVID and there aren't many meetings or gatherings, but uh, no, I mean, that's that's sort of the thing that with those different groups, I feel like those groups are designed to reach out to, to be inclusive to everybody. Their main core of people may be aligned with that specific group, but they do that as a way to, I mean, it's just what we've been saying. It's a resource just like any other bar association or anything like that. Um, going back to Matt's point as far as being proactive about it, that's one of the things that um, when we were looking to move back to Chicago from El Paso, one of the things that, you know, when we were looking for apartments, we wanted to get a more, you know, culturally diverse experience. And my wife, she grew up in El Paso. That is strictly a Mexican culture. Um, wherever you look, some Puerto Rican, but mostly Mexican. So when we moved here, we came to the Uptown neighborhood, which is exactly that. It's more of a culturally diverse, you know, ethnic restaurants, people that literally came from Africa and opened up restaurants. Um, we see that that broad diversity. And, you know, unfortunately, like I said, being COVID the way it is, that sort of hindered our ability to mingle with the local folks here. But I mean, that that's exactly it. You just have to get outside your comfort zone and seek out these opportunities. Yeah, I think comfort zone is the word. I don't, I don't really feel unwelcome, but I, I know I'd probably feel uncomfortable, which I guess you could say is just another form of white privilege. What I don't think any other racial group can just insulate themselves from uh, other racial groups as much as a white person can. So just because it's uncomfortable doesn't mean you should do it. You shouldn't do it. Um, it's, it's something you should probably strive to do. So the idea of of being forced into an environment. I have a, a, a thought that I'm wondering if, if Lenny would indulge me for. When I, um, there was, there were two summers where I worked uh, at a, an English language camp um, and they were almost all European students, uh, teenagers, but I found it really fascinating because they were all just forced together and they all had to speak English and there were Italians, Spaniards, Germans, Swedes, Finns, Latvians, you know, a gazillion different languages and, and backgrounds and cultures, but they all had to come together and speak English and get along with each other. And so I thought about, uh, in, when I was preparing for this episode, I thought about what Germany had up until 2011, which was uh, a year or more of forced public service, typically in a military service. But if you opted out of military, you could go do public service. You could go do some kind of community service work. And uh, there was actually recently an uh, op-ed written by General H.R. McMaster, who uh, was a national security advisor for a while. And he talked about how 
military service really breaks down barriers and serves to, there's just no place for racism. There's no place for bigotry because we're all here together. We have a single thing to do and we're all going to do it together and ignore all of these other things. Uh, and it really was a way to bring people together. So my question to you, Lenny, is, you know, in the, with the idea of, of, of an environment where people are forced together with a common goal, is that something that you experienced as a, as a, an environment which allowed for that to happen? And do you think that if, you know, America were to do something similar, that there would be uh, be real benefits to that in terms of increased awareness of people's backgrounds, experiences, cultures, et cetera? So are you referring to like military experience? Like the experience that I had in the military? Yeah. Yeah. So the, I mean, this is purely anecdotal, so take it with a grain of salt. But even within that landscape, like, for example, I guess the most forced together that people really are is when you're first going through you know, initial entry training and everybody's thrown into the same same room. You're living together, you're showering together, you're doing all this stuff for you know several weeks and those relationships are built. But even within that environment, at the downtime, people still tend to relate more with their, you know, specific, specific groups. Um, now, not to say that people aren't forced to work together and they're not, you know, forced to overcome these, these goals and objectives, but when it comes back to what people are comfortable with, like when it's downtime, people still, just like what Emmett was saying, they, they go to what they're comfortable with. That's not to say that, you know, it doesn't, expand someone's horizon like and the people that i worked with like there's a complete array of you know, different backgrounds that i worked with i worked for for uh, a woman that was you know from chinese descent like she grew up in china she came and she was in the army and she was my boss for quite a bit of time um and you know those experiences that she's able to share that her culture can then share sure that that exposes you to those different cultures but then at the end of the day, people still tend to go back to what they're comfortable with. Yeah, I was going to say, I haven't read this op-ed from H.R. McMaster, but just based on what you said, it's either naive or disingenuous to say that there's no room for racism in the military. Oh, that's Maybe. completely PR. Like, he said, yeah, that... they, there's the different... Like there's, and it's sort of what I said, I think it was last episode, the difference between diversity and EO, like equal opportunity, because that's one thing. If you talk to people that are, again, this is just anecdotal, but if you talk to people that are involved at all involved in promotions or selections, they, you get their packet, you get their file and you're looking through their file. And if they think that there is a minority that is unqualified, it's hard for them to say that they're unqualified because then they're looked at like they are violating equal opportunity. And so the perception is that a lot of the people that are promoted, that are selected for certain jobs um, that have some sort of prestige, the unfortunate aspect of that is, you know, the semblance of tokenism. And, you know, you only got this job because you're a minority or you only got this job because you're a woman. That's, that is always anecdotally that's always sort of in the back of people's minds and it really puts these people that have committed their career to the military 
it puts them at a disadvantage. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I, um, this isn't anything, anything like forced public service or anything, but I worked in a, a prison setting um, and I felt that that's where there was, it was about 50% white, 40% black, 10% Hispanic, um, the jail that I worked at. And that was some of the deepest racial divides I've ever experienced in my life. I mean, a lot of my job as a therapist in that setting was trying to navigate the deep division between the black and the white inmates and, and, and trying to work around those. So I don't know that forcing people together is going to help that either. It's about the culture and about the intention. Again, that's, I feel like I'm a broken record in saying that, but no, not not at all. And I and I think the intention is 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 on both sides of the equation. It's the intention of the organizers and what the intent is of the people who were there. And so that's why that's why I brought this up because part of me wondered, you know, like the uh, European students that I cited, their purpose was there to learn. Uh, and so they were, you know, they had their their purpose. The school created a purpose for them in order to be there, but then they had their purpose, which was to learn. And so part of me wondered if, you know, whether it's military service or community service, there was a forced uh, year or, or two of some kind of gap year between high school and college, where instead of going straight from high school to college, you are working at a nursing home for two years and you're helping the elderly. Uh, and your co and that's your purpose, that's your intent, and your coworkers are from all walks of life. And that might that not expose you to something that particularly what we touched on with geographic limitations might expose you to things. And in the last episode, Olivia, you mentioned something, and I, I apologize, I forget specifically what you said, but it made me think of people who, and like we talked about in this episode, who are uncomfortable retreating to their corners. And when they feel challenged or threatened and they're uncomfortable, they're going to go back into what's a safer environment. Uh, and I, I think it, it make to me, it makes the case for not just increased diversity at an institutional level in terms of corporate, but a, a younger age uh, where it's not, you know, that whole retreat to what's safe idea is it's not a diversity bubble that you're retreating back into, if that makes sense. My last question for the group is, do we think that pursuing diversity in one's personal life should be thought of on the same plane as like health, you know, eating right, exercising, getting enough sleep? Is this something, and, and in terms of also like mental health, is this something that's on the same plane? You know, I, I think we've all, reached a consensus where we believe that it's critical. And so if it's critical, should we be rethinking how we pursue this in our personal lives such that it's on the same plane as pursuing a healthy, balanced life? Rada, so what with you, you Matt, what do you think? I think so. But to uh, Olivia's er earlier point, that, that's got to come from a place of consciousness first, um, you have to really think about just how important it is to you. You know, I, you know, for me, eating right, it, it, 
developed over time is just something that is so critical for me. And so now it is become second nature. And so I think I would have to spend, I, in the abstract, I agree with it. In practice, what I'd have to do is keep thinking about it and keep thinking about it. I, you know, to just use the example that we said, I'd have to keep going. I would have to keep going to affinity group meetings and keep going and keep going until it's organic, until it's, I just do this as part of my natural state. So I would have to be, unfortunately, a little forced in the beginning just to raise that level of consciousness to get to a place where, okay, now this is just part of my lifestyle. Now this is something that I do rather than having it on my calendar. Yeah, I think being being a person of color makes that answer a little easier. Like it's it's my life. It's a it is it's a part of who I am. So I could never escape it. But I am so passionate about it that I I've made it my life, and maybe to an unhealthy level. Like um, I, I'm especially conscious of it when I'm at my mother in law's house. I love her dearly. I love my husband dearly. But they are white people who grew up in a very you know, typically white way in Northern Kentucky. And um, I, I'm i self-conscious that almost everything I say relates back to race and politics. And I can see their frustration with me sometimes, um, but it's who I am and I don't see that changing. When I was a therapist, I used to really help with when I had clients or patients come in, I would really talk about a value-driven lifestyle. I think there are like hundreds and hundreds of values out there to choose from. And one really good way to live intentionally and mindfully is to choose five values. It sounds silly, but choose five values from this list and try to make sure that all aspects of your life are conforming to those values. So um, I have a list, love and family, justice, pursuit of justice is way up there for me, appreciation of art and beauty and culture. Those are my values. So that's how I live my life. And to take it one step further, um, I'm going to have children soon. I know Matt's already a father and um, I don't know uh, what the status is with the rest of the board, but um, my next big project after graduating law school is to start a family of my own. And I know that diversity, inclusion, equity, those are the foremost values that I want to raise my children in. I will pick where we live according to the school that the kids will go to based on diversity statistics. I will make sure that my friend, my children um, have friends and taste different foods. They're not picky eaters. Um, they're going to experience all of that. And that's going to be very intentional on my part. So I'm hoping that more people raise their children like that moving forward as a sign of the times changing. And that will create what Leanne mentioned earlier about this organic, beautifully diverse mosaic um, that I don't see exists right now. Yeah, I think it comes down to intentionally being uncomfortable when you're uncomfortable in these sort of social settings, I think it's it's probably a good thing in a form of growth. Go to an event that makes you uncomfortable and that's different from what you grew up with and just be open to new perspectives. I think that's my takeaway from this. Yeah, I don't know if I can really equate 
having a diverse group of friends to eating right or, or living well, et cetera. I'm having a hard time making that connection. I'm like, yes, it is. No, it's not. But it's more political. It's all these things. It's my everyday life. So I'm all over the place in regards to answering that question. Um, sure, sorry, I, I, I didn't no, mean to be reductive. I just meant to think. About no, no, it's not, not that you're life. being reductive, but that I just can't figure out what my answer is to the question. Um, and so when I think about diversity as, as we've been talking about it, I guess it's not something, I guess I think about like eating right, et cetera. It, that's kind of, those are kind of things that are on my checklist. And I guess I don't think of diversity as something on, on my checklist, especially because of the social location that I hold, but also because I feel like in many ways, diversity is the, is the thing on the surface. And I think, yes, it's a good, it's a good metric as we continue to unravel things in our society but I think really what we're saying when we say like, I want a diverse, well, I guess what I'm saying, but I want a diverse group of friends or what that I want diversity, right, is yes, to deconstruct whiteness, but that's because I want people to live well. Like, do I have, am I living a life that also allows other people to live well, not just to survive, but to thrive? I mean, I think about, and this is maybe going a little bit off point, but I think about, I was watching Planet Earth with my nephew this weekend um, and it was like the deep sea version and it goes into all these different parts of the ecosystem and you need the fish and you need the sharks and you need the coral reef to be well, you need all these things well to make the ocean go and flow. And right, they talk about how it's uh, ecologically very, very diverse and all these things in this very, very diverse system exist so that everything else can exist well. They're all so interconnected, right? And so when I think about really getting below the surface of diversity, it really is, is are all these things living well together? Are they all thriving, not just surviving? And so that's my like broad, really out there answer to your question. It's not something that I'm checking off, but it is important it is important below it is it is important it's important because it's really asking are we living well together and when we are able to get to the place where diversity is beyond beyond the metrics etc i think that's what we're really asking like are we well are we well um i don't know that's what it comes down to me and ask me yeah in 15 years it may be different i'll probably have a better analogy etc but are we well is is the best i can give you right now could you rephrase the question? Everything got sort of lost in Sure. Do you think that pursuing diversity should be on the same, should be thought of in the same way as just pursuing a balanced and healthy lifestyle? Is it, is it part of that? If you're pursuing a healthy and balanced lifestyle, are you inherently pursuing increased diversity in your life? So I think... The way that Olivia phrased it, I actually liked really, um, really well. The to me, it sort of comes down to the overall, I guess, happiness of the world we live in. Um, everything that happened this summer uh, happened for a reason, and I think that the conversations that came out of it uh, were healthy conversations. But at the end of the day you know, has anything truly changed since everything that this summer happened? Like what has changed in society? So as far as personal choices that we make, as far as diversity, 
Um, I think it obviously does play a role in your overall health, mental health, physical health, however you phrase it, because at the end of the day, it can ultimately build into those events that we had over the summer. So personal choices that people make, um, it's sort of like the, the aggregate of those choices. If everyone makes one small decision, it may not seem like a big deal. But then when you add all those small decisions up, it can sort of build into those institutional issues. And I guess I'll bring it home here. I think I really uh, resonated with like what Olivia said, which is kind of like, are we well? Like we can consider diversity an aspect of social health almost in a way. Are social networks healthy? Are our relationships with other people healthy? And that is both an individual health, you know, are my, is my relationship with so-and-so healthy and good and um, benefiting both of us? And also just our collective health as a society, is our society healthy? And I think diversity is a component of a healthy society and um, like a component of societal wellness. And, um, that's kind of the lens through which I view this if we're talking about the health context, you know, um, are we like in the same way to go back to physical health, if we're not eating diverse foods, we're not healthy. And if our society isn't practicing diversity of opinion, experience, background, race, gender, sexuality, like then that's not a healthy society. And that's where you get ideas like white supremacy is like, that is the antithesis of diversity really. And so if we're not practicing diverse ideas, then that's really, um, we're lacking in our societal wellness or our social health. Exactly what Leanne said. That's what I was trying to say. And I think it's it was brilliant to bring up the body um, because if we look to nature and natural ecosystems, right? Like all the diversity is there so that everything thrives and everything values each other. Um, and that's, yeah, exactly what Leanne said. I just wanted to piggyback off of that, that we could also look to to nature, to the ocean, to our bodies as an example of the diversity that we are invited into in our everyday lives. So do we conclude that diversity is required for homeostasis in our society? Sir David Attenborough, yes, it does. <laughs> I want to thank the board for uh, participating in this discussion. I know it wasn't the easiest discussion to have, but I, I think that we accomplished at least my goal of being honest, sincere, and nuanced and, and bringing our different perspectives to create a, a, what I felt was a very rich conversation. And I, I hope that our listeners will agree. I hope that as we put this dumpster fire of a year in our rearview mirror and we approach 2021, we can think about what we talked about here today and we can think about what we demand of others and what we demand of ourselves and what we pursue in the coming years after we put this year behind us of how we achieve diversity in our lives and what we choose and what option or decision, what decisions we make that will create a more diverse personal and societal world in your personal sphere uh, and in the world writ large. We we always want to hear from people, but I think on this subject more than most, I would love to hear from listeners. Um, if anything we said resonated with you or you really disagree, um, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, we're on Gmail, we have a website where you can reach us. Please, please reach out to us because I think that 
our conversation will not mean as much without understanding how it affected our listeners. So um, please contribute to the social media or to email us and just let us know what you think. Um, I would love to hear from you. Absolutely. I, I second that. Thank you, Rod. And if, if we made you uncomfortable, tell us. Uh, if we said something that you want a second to tell us, but particularly if we said something that you think, hey, you know, you podvocators are way off the mark, please tell us. Uh, we want to know where we're, where we're wrong, where we're falling short. And I'm going to take Emmett's advice uh, as I approach 2021 and think about how am I going to make myself uncomfortable in such a way where I can hopefully come out the other side better for it. With that, thank you again to this board. Thank you to our listeners uh, for joining us and have a wonderful rest of 2020. What little is hopefully left, unless of course the monoliths have finally you know, blown up the planet. But otherwise we look forward to seeing you all again in 2021. Take care everyone. That's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com for more information on